Hi everyone, and welcome back to Square Mile of Murder, yay, and to part two of our exploration of H.H. Holmes. I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And in this episode, we need to talk about a, a, a few things. First, we need to talk about the mythology surrounding H.H. Holmes, and in conjunction with that, we need to talk about late 19th century journalism in America. <laughs> Because it always comes back to that, doesn't it? All the fun things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last week, we left off with a major question when it comes to H.H. H. Holmes. What's up with the hotel? Like, did it actually operate? So we mentioned briefly in part one, but Holmes supposedly built this additional third floor onto his existing multi-use building at South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Englewood, Chicago. This addition was, in theory, built as a hotel that would house guests for the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition from May to October in 1893. So if you don't know, the World's Columbian Exposition also known as the World's Fair or the Chicago World Fair or a World Exposition or Expo. It was a huge international expo event. They're still carried out to this day. It usually lasts like three to six months and is designed to exhibit achievement of nations. So they're typically held every four years and each has a different theme. And then there's a specialised expo in between. So there's a different kind of expo every two years, basically. Uh, the first World's Fair was held in London in 1851, called The Great Exhibition, and the theme was Industry of All Nations. The last expo was held in Milan, Italy, in 2015, on the theme Feeding the Planet, Energy for Life. And there was a specialised expo held in Astana, in Kazakhstan, on the theme Future Energy in 2017. So the next World Expo is actually due to be held in Dubai later this year. Although for marketing, logo, <laughs> money-making purposes, it will still be called Expo 2020 because it was pospo postponed from last year because of COVID. And the theme is Connecting Minds, Creating the Future. The Chicago World's Columbian Exposition was like staggering it was this incredible event uh it was designed by some of america's most famous architects including john root and daniel burnham who were the first architects to construct towering skyscrapers uh, and frederick law olmsted uh, a landscape designer who's most famous for creating central park in new york also prospect park um it's you know lesser known little sibling Yes, and also their lesser, lesser-known little sibling, Forest Park in Springfield, Massachusetts, literally 100 feet away from where I grew up. Cool. So this group of cool guys, they designed uh, an expansive Beaux-Arts-style city in Chicago's Jackson Park. It featured 14 massive neoclassical great, quote-unquote, great buildings, so like big buildings, uh, that were faced in a white stucco material. And the combination of the white buildings, the liberal use of water features, and early use of uh, Westinghouse's alternating current electric lighting seemed to make this temporary city quote-unquote glow, which is how it earned the nickname the White City. See, I thought it was just racism. Well, that's that too, which we so don't have time to get into in this episode because there's a lot here. Oh, I, but like, I, mean, I was just being a dick, but you know. <laughs> but like the whole World's Fair thing. Well, the fact that it was to commemorate Columbus, right off the bat, you're not starting well. It's not a good jumping off point, no. is it? And then there was a lot of, like, really racist country exhibitions and the whole thing. Um, well, I mean, even up until the 50s, they still literally kidnapped yeah. black children from various African countries and put them on display. Yep. 
in big exhibitions like this. So there's a lot of that happening. It's not good. It's not good. Um, none of this is good. And like that in and of itself could be a whole podcast series, I'm sure. That we are not qualified to talk about. No, definitely not. Um, so yeah, the White City for a multitude of reasons. Uh, it covered 690 acres and housed nearly 200 temporary buildings. It contained canals and lagoons and held exhibits featuring people and cultures from 46 countries. Some of the more famous attractions and inventions included the thrilling equestrian exhibition by none other than Buffalo Bill Cody and Annie Oakley, although <laughs> they operated just outside the fairgrounds as an unofficial attraction because the World's Fair officials actually rejected their bid to be included. But they were a big draw. <laughs> I mean, that's like going to like off, off. Broadway. Yeah, it's just like, you know, it's around the corner. It's where the best shit happens. Exactly. And there's no cues. Exactly. Um, also at the fair, you had the world's first Ferris wheel. Nice. Designed by Ferris, the guy. Um, you had early elevators. People were introduced to the zipper for the first time. Like clothing. Yeah. Zips. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they had on display the first voice recording. People got to enjoy Cracker Jacks as snacks. What are Cracker Jacks? They're like, I think, I've only had them a couple times, but they're like caramel-covered popcorn, I think. Oh. And also on display were early motion pictures. So a lot of, like, big stuff going on. Um, so from May to October, the World's Fair welcomed 27,300,000 visitors. And remember, this nice. is 1893. <laughs> That's like half the world. A lot of fucking people. <laughs> so this would obviously be a very attractive business opportunity to take advantage of. So Holmes told investors that he wanted to build a third floor on his building to create a hotel to house fair crowds. And because... People were anticipating Chicago being flooded by visitors. Invested Investors agreed that this was a great idea. And they agreed to back Holmes and invest in his hotel. But Holmes had other plans. We discussed last week how Holmes had built the rest of the building. He did it in stages and would have crews in for like a week or two at a time and then fire them. So many sources say that this is because he didn't want anyone to know the layout of the building. But... More likely, he didn't want to pay for construction costs and labour. And he did the same thing with the third floor. He funded the construction with cash from his investors and then purchased materials and furnishings on credit, but then wouldn't pay anyone back. And in fact, all those secret passageways, weird rooms and concealed spaces within the building, they were less likely part of some kind of horrific murder maze hellscape, and more likely where Holmes hid the furniture he bought on credit. Which is, like, way less exciting. Yeah. I mean, it does show just how, how much the mythology of this story has just taken on a life of its own. It's massive. Um, And this is fun, because, like, I wrote last week's and you've written this week's half. Yeah. So I don't know what happened in this half. Yeah. Well, because, like, I was trying to go through, like, okay, how do I pick up on last week? But then the more I read, the more I was like, oh. There's a lot of differences. There's so much stuff that, like, there are so many different takes on this. So hopefully we did it right. In one instance, one of his creditors informed Holmes that if he didn't pay up, they would come and repossess the furniture he had bought on credit. He told them to come on over and pick it up, if they could find it. <laughs> and in fact, they couldn't. Holmes had hidden it in rooms, passageways, and more all squirreled away throughout the building. Uh, he would also buy things on credit and then sell them on immediately to new buyers. Obviously, netting the profits himself. Yeah, I actually read another account that he had bought this like massive vault, and he bought it on credit. And the way he had it installed, it was essentially cemented into the building. 
Yeah. So when the creditors came to collect, he said, well, you can take it, but if you damage the building, you have to pay. So they went and assessed it and were like, we can't take it out without destroying the walls that are keeping it in place. Yeah. Yeah. So they had to leave it and he got away with it. <laughs> yeah. He built the room around it such that it could never be removed. Yeah. Um, and this is all very upsetting because of, you know, when you think of like credit scores and everything today, <laughs> this man just kept getting more and more money and I can't even get a credit card for when I went on holiday because I'd moved house twice in one year and that fucked my credit rating because I moved twice in one year. This guy, he's given us all a bad name. Yeah. He's just really just taken the mick. Yeah. Like over a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just not happy with this. How are the banks just letting him get away with this? I Yeah. Like, and the, the thing is, like, people knew what he was up to at this point. That's what I don't get. It's like... Everyone who worked in his building, like, people were well aware that this guy was a fucking scammer, but somehow they just kept throwing money at the guy. With all of these various things in mind, it is highly unlikely that the castle housed any hotel guests during the World's Fair. There were a handful of long-term residents in the apartments on the second floor, but by all accounts, the hotel rooms were shoddily constructed, unfinished, and devoid of comforts like, you know, furniture that most hotel guests would be looking for. Oh, what? You mean you don't take your bed with you? Not usually. <laughs> no. You're missing out. <laughs> then, why did the castle get this reputation of being this, like, house of murder, you know, it, you know the, the World's Fair, Murder Central. Hellscape maze. Yep. Well, of course you can. You can chalk that up to journalism. Uh, if we can even call it that. Uh, you see, the late 1800s was a time for journalism that wasn't too far off from where we are now. Yellow journalism reigned supreme, in large part due to William Randolph Hearst's media empire. Why is it that it always comes back to William Randolph Hearst in our stories? Um, so the term yellow journalism was coined to describe the sensational journalism that was prevalent in the 1890s, especially by the publishers Hearst and Pulitzer. Yeah, that Pulitzer. <laughs> oh. But like, I need to do a little more reading about him because I'm not sure how... Yeah, isn't Pulitzer like <laughs> like a good thing. very highbrow now? Yeah, so I'm I, I need to do more research. I'm I'm curious. Things we learn, right? So these two publishers in particular popularized the style of journalism we would now like re likely refer to as tabloid journalism. Uh, the five major characteristics of yellow journalism were scare headlines in huge print, often of minor news, lavish use of pictures or imaginary drawings. Use of faked interviews, misleading headlines, pseudoscience, and a parade of uh, false learning from so-called experts. Emphasis on full-color Sunday supplements, usually with comic strips. Oh. I know, that one seems okay to me, but whatever. Um, dramatic sympathy for, with the underdog, quote-unquote, against the system. Um, so We've come a long way in the last 130 years, haven't we? Oh, yeah. We don't, we don't do that at all. It's fine. Um, so this type of reporting really soared thanks to one topic in particular, crime. So with that in mind, you kind of need to take a closer look at the sources of information we have about Holmes's life and crimes. I mean, this is really the beginning of a true crime yeah. genre, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is the same time as Jack the Ripper. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, despite popular perception, Holmes's castle was in the news prior to his discovery as a murderer. In fact, it was in the news before the World's Fair even opened. In March 1893, the Chicago Tribune published an article called Hid in Secret Rooms about the castle because some of Holmes's many creditors had called the police on him. Shocking. The cops, well, yeah. I mean, at some point, someone's got to be like, yeah, we need to deal with this guy. <laughs> yeah. The cops showed up to search a building for Holmes and the goods he'd failed to pay for. 
and in tow with the cops were journalists. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. Which uh, wasn't uncommon at the time. Still isn't really. And apparently, like, it was very common for cops to let journalists just, like, handle all the evidence and go into all the rooms. Like, basically co-investigate with them. So. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, at first, they found neither homes nor the goods, but eventually they found goods in hidden passages and rooms, and so newspapers ran stories about the strange labyrinth building. Now, when Holmes was eventually arrested, the newspapers had a massive hand in elevating his status from conman to devil. Uh, the story goes, H.H. Holmes, already an experienced murderer and equipped with lots of anatomical knowledge from medical school, would approach young, naive visitors to the World's Fair. These visitors were often young, attractive women, perhaps traveling out of their small hometowns for the first time, drawn to the massive and impressive white city. Holmes would then offer the traveler a room at his nearby hotel. She would take this dashing man up on his offer, and they would head back to the hotel together. Back at the hotel that night, the guest would settle into her room, not really realizing that Holmes was lurking around his secret passageways. Perhaps he spied on her for a while. Perhaps he snuck in while she was sleeping through a false back in the closet. Maybe he turned a knob and watched as the airtight room filled with deadly gas. Then he would take the body down to the basement where he dissolved it in acid or dissected it himself and sold the poor woman's skeleton to a medical school. Now, after he was arrested in 1894, it came out that he's carried out this dastardly plot anywhere between 27 and 200 times. But, always a but, uh, knowing what we know about the castle, there's no way that this happened. None of the rooms were finished. The gas lines running through the building were for lighting, not killing. The so-called acid vats in the basement were oil vats for heating, and the cremation oven was actually just a large wood stove. And as discussed, the secret passageways were for running credit and insurance scams, not lurking yeah. in the shadows. So, with that in mind, what crimes did Holmes actually commit? Well, last week we listed his most, uh, most likely early victims, including Julia Connor and her daughter Pearl, Emmeline uh, Sagrande, and Minnie and Nanny Williams. And that takes us to the middle of 1893. So while the World's Fair was bustling on, Holmes was scheming, as usual. We know that he travelled around the country for a while, but he also started making plans for an incendiary incident. Love the alliteration. Right. Gotta do it. On August 13th, 1893, at around midnight, the top floor of the castle caught fire. This hotel, in inverted commas, floor was basically empty. There were a few other occupants of the building, eight or nine people in the apartments when the blaze occurred. The fire didn't even make the news at the time. It was overshadowed by another fire at a hotel in Chicago's Loop that did actually injure World's Fair patrons. Yeah. People close to Holmes were sure that he had had someone set the fire as an insurance scam. And indeed, Holmes held so many insurance policies on the castle that fire should have netted him several thousand dollars. Uh, witnesses saw him working throughout the day before the fire, moving things out of the third floor, removing valuables, and stripping doorknobs and other hardware from the building before heading home to Wilmette for the evening. But Holmes probably didn't collect much money from the scam. You see, all of his policies were held under fake aliases, and by this point, many insurance companies were onto his schemes and basically took him to court, and refused to pay out. Good. Yeah. Um, so, he tried to burn down his building for insurance, which didn't really work. Then what? Well, he left Chicago. <laughs> uh, realizing that his scams weren't working as well as before, Holmes decided to try his schemes elsewhere. 
Uh, imagine when you could just up sticks and move across the country and start running new insurance scams. Just like, bye guys. <laughs> then were the days. See you later. Um, so in 1893, he had been courting a woman named Georgiana Yoke. He had been using the name H.M. Howard with her. Uh, in January of 1894, Holmes and Georgiana left Chicago and traveled to Denver, where they got married, because of course they did. How many times is he married at this point? This is his... This must be his fourth wife. Fourth, yeah. Because it's the first woman, the woman who marries while he's in medical school. So it's Clara, Myrta, um, Minnie, Minnie, and... Georgiana. Georgiana. Okay. So, fourth wife, third illegal wife. <laughs> yeah. Four, four marriages, zero divorces. Yes. Funny how that works. Um, so, Holmes's true reason for heading to Denver was to collect the life insurance money on uh, Minnie Williams's brother, Baldwin Williams, who had died either of a terrible accident at uh, his job at a smelting factory. Or possibly Holmes had killed him or had had him killed. Being responsible for his demise. Yes, that would have been better. <laughs> but really, who's to say? Because it's so hard to source information for this shit. But basically, he managed to collect the life insurance money for this woman's brother. That he probably murdered her. And maybe murdered him. Okay, I think I think I've got the the thread of this story. I think uh, Georgiana Yoke was described as a beautiful woman with unusually large eyes due to a medical condition. Weird. Yep, they all describe her like that. It's like okay. <laughs> In late 1893, she inherited one sixteenth of her grandmother's estate, which amounted to around two thousand dollars. Which wasn't much, but that little bit of money made her even more attractive to Holmes. I mean, back then that was quite a bit of money. It was a lot of money, but in the grand Actually, scheme of in today, in this whole <laughs> situation ship that we got going on with the world, I mean, I'd take two thousand dollars. <laughs> give me the money. Show me. Give me the Benjamins. Uh, I'll take two Grover Clevelands, please. Who actually? was president at this time. Oh. And he's on the $1,000 bill. I didn't even know you had a $1,000 bill. I can't even remember what, how much Benjamins are. Are they 200? They're 100. Oh, they're 100. Yeah. Um, $1,000 bill isn't really in circulation, but they do exist. A bit like a £100 note. You get them occasionally in Scotland, but very rarely. Yeah. Made her all the more attractive for homes. The couple went to Fort Worth, Texas and spent most of spring 1894 there. While in Texas, Holmes got into the habit of horse theft. I love how you've just written, got into the habit. <laughs> I mean... Like, like you get into the habit of like taking sleeping pills, or you get into the habit of knitting, putting extra salt on your chips or something, or you get into the habit of just doing something unhealthy, you like got into the habit of stealing horses. But like, that's literally how he does things. He just picks up these like <laughs> criminal hobbies. That's how I picture him. <laughs> it's just like, I'll try horse thievery this week. We always find the livestock criminals, don't we? Yeah. So we should point out... That horse theft was considered a capital crime in Texas at the time. Just something to keep in mind for later. Yeah. Which also, I love that fact. Like, you steal a horse, you die. After some time in Fort Worth, possibly constructing another building for these, you know, credit scams, Holmes moved on to St. Louis, Missouri. And it was there that Holmes was arrested and spent some time in jail. He was charged with selling mortgaged goods. So, about time, really. Yeah. Uh, he was quickly bailed out, but not before thinking up a plan for a life insurance scam with a fellow inmate, Marion Hedgepeth. Wow, that's quite a name. Isn't it? Hedgepeth was also known as the Handsome Bandit. Okay, I'm into it. <laughs> 
the debonair bandit and the derby kid oh and the montana bandit yeah he had a lot of names i guess i mean that really is the, the true mark of success when you have four nicknames yeah really two of which one similar one, <laughs> one relating to where you come from yeah one relating to something you're either good at or something you've committed a lot of crimes in that region, and two relating to your looks. Yeah. I mean, that that is quite the achievement, I think. Yeah. He was pretty good looking. I looked at his Wikipedia picture. He's he's not bad looking. Yeah, you're not bad, not bad. Yeah. For a bandit, you know. Yeah. Handsome, debonair, derby, Montana bandit man. Uh, was well known... Uh, was a well-known Wild West outlaw who'd recently been caught for robbing a train of $20,000. So, like, <laughs> a much better criminal than Holmes, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, like, scamming women out of, like, two grand yeah. inheritance. This guy's, like, this robbing This dude's, like, trains. robbing trains for 20 grand. Yeah. He's, like, he's another level. But somehow mm -hmm. they got put in the same cell together. So, go figure. So, Holmes and Hedgepeth talked about a plan for Holmes to fake his own death and collect a huge insurance payout. Pretty standard in the in terms of life insurance schemes, right? Yeah. Um, so he promised Hedgepeth some of the money from the scheme in return for Hedgepeth setting Holmes up with a St. Louis attorney who would help him carry out the plan. And just to add another amazing name to the list, <laughs> um, this attorney called Jethpa Howe helped Holmes and his longtime associate, Benjamin Peitzel, set everything up and they faked Holmes's death. <laughs> but it didn't work. So the insurance company was suspicious and refused to pay out on the policy. So, yeah. So Holmes abandoned his claim with the insurance company, but this would not be the last of his life insurance schemes. And interestingly enough, um, Marion Hedgepeth actually cooperated with police later on and totally snitched on Holmes. So there's no, no honor snitches in... Snitches get stitches. Or s snitches get probably preferential Reduce treatment. sentences. <laughs> doesn't roll off the tongue quite the same way, does it? No. Um, so instead, Holmes decided to carry out the same scam with Peitzel. Now, Peitzel purchased life insurance for himself and agreed to fake his death using a medical cadaver. They decided that they would travel to Philadelphia to carry out their plan, uh, but they also told Peitzel's wife Carrie of the plan because she was the one who would have to claim the insurance money, which was $10,000. What, you mean the widow claims it, not a random associate? Not just like my buddy, my buddy Henry over here. Um, Does this mean that when you die, the gremlin gets your insurance money, not me? Well, no, because I don't have my insurance. Yeah, but assuming at some point you do, I'm very upset by this development. I, sorry I thought to, it just went to a random associate. Sorry to tell you, that's, that's just not how it works. Well, I'm very, very let down by this. <laughs> Uh, so Carrie agreed to this plan, and off off the boys went to Philadelphia. But in Philadelphia, Holmes seemed to dawdle whilst looking for a suitable corpse. I mean, it, it's not the most exciting of tasks, is it? No, it's, it's like you got to look at so many dead guys. It's like, does this one look like Ben? Does that one look like Ben? It takes a lot out of you, you know? And, you know, because of all this corpse dawdling, Heitzel began to get impatient. There was money on the line, after all. Fair bit of it. So Heitzel turned to his old vice, drinking. Yeah. So if you remember from last week, he was a very heavy drinker and had been treated at at least one sanatorium for alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And Holmes was all too happy with this choice. Don't start drinking around murderous people. Yeah, it's not a good plan. Yeah. Uh, one night, Holmes decided to help his friends along and started pouring more and more drinks. After Peitzel had passed out, Holmes killed him with chloroform. 
He then burned Pytel's hair and clothes, smashed the chloroform bottle on the floor. He then set everything on fire with benzene. He wanted to wanted to make it look like Pytel had died of an had died in an accidental explosion. This is kind of like you know how they say um, when a man marries his mistress, it creates a vacancy. Yeah, this is a bit like that. You know, if you've got a mate who's like into killing people and selling the cadavers, at some point you're gonna get killed. Yeah, at some point you're gonna be the cadaver. Yeah. Uh, Holmes probably didn't do a particularly good job of staging the scene, but he did enough to convince the Philadelphia medical examiner who ruled the death accidental. In order to collect the insurance money, Holmes needed Carrie and one other family member to identify the body as Peitzel. Carrie thought this was merely part of the scam and she was supposed to identify a random dead body. Holmes told that Peitzel was hiding out somewhere. But Carrie didn't want to travel from St. Louis and leave her infant son behind. So instead, she sent one of her daughters to identify the body. 15-year-old Alice headed to Philadelphia to identify the body. The young girl had to identify the mutilated corpse of her father. And she did. Alice managed to identify him by his teeth. Yeah. And also, like, so the this mother is send like, first of all, is agreeing to go along with this scheme. Second of all, is sending her teenage daughter to go help with this scheme to, in theory, identify a random cadaver, right? But then in actuality, this poor 15-year-old girl is actually identifying her dead father, so she thinks her father's dead now. It's a whole... It's a mess. We assume that left Alice completely traumatized. Yeah. The insurance company agreed to send $7,200 uh, to Carrie Pitesell. We're not sure why they didn't pay out the full 10000 Who knows? Yeah. Uh, Holmes then told Carrie that Pitesell owed him five grand and he wanted to be paid back. So Carrie did that. It's just... Of course that happened. Um, so now Holmes had his money and he had Alice in his control. Uh, but the Pitesell family knew too much for his liking and he knew that he had to get rid of them. So he asked Carrie to send two more of her children to Pennsylvania. He told her that Ben was hiding out in Ohio and that he would take the family there to be with him, but he also didn't want it to look suspicious by traveling as a whole big group. So, Carrie sent Holmes uh, 11-year-old Nellie and 8-year-old Howard while keeping uh, her eldest daughter, Desi, and baby Wharton with her. So, uh, Carrie, Desi, and Wharton were supposed to wait for a while before also traveling to meet up with Ben and Holmes. And what happened next was perhaps Holmes's most impressive display of criminal mastery. He managed to navigate himself and Georgiana Yoke, the three Peitzel children, and Carrie and her two other children around the Midwest and Canada without any of the groups ever running into each other or knowing that the whole thing was a con. Which, like, I don't know. Sorry, my brain's just <laughs> processing that. It's a lot. So How good was the mail service back then? It must have been good because... So at first, as I was reading through this and writing it, I was like, oh, this must have been like a months long process. It's like a weeks long process in actuality. So I don't even know. But like, it was a thing. Pony Express, something like that. Trains, probably I mean, this trains. This is better than the, the Nash, than the Royal Mail that we have now. Hells yeah. Um, so... He told Carrie that her children were traveling with his old friend, Minnie Williams. Oh, she's back from the dead. Yeah, she's back from the dead. So, of course, Carrie was like, oh, great. They're not traveling alone. They're traveling with, like, this, this lady. Holmes knows her. It's great. Not exactly the case. So, he managed to steer all of these people in their various little clusters 
through Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Detroit, Toronto, and Ogdensburg, New York, which is just across the um, St. Lawrence River from Canada. Uh, when they reached Detroit, Holmes ha actually had Carrie staying just blocks away from Alice and Nellie. It was in Detroit that Alice wrote a letter to Carrie saying that Howard was no longer traveling with the girls. And I should say that letter was never sent. And that was because Holmes had taken Howard to a cottage in Irvington, Indianapolis on October 10th, 1894. There, he killed the boy with cyanide and burned his body in the stove in the cellar. Yep. Lovely man. Just lovely. Uh, next, he met up with Alice and Nellie in Toronto on October 25th. There, he convinced the two girls to get into a large trunk. He drilled a hole in the top of the trunk and he'd used, and he used a hose to pump deadly gas, likely chloroform, inside. He then burned the trunk in the basement of a house he had rented at 16 St. Vincent Street. Uh, all the while this was going on, Holmes was also travelling with Georgiana Yoke, who supposedly had no clue what was going on. I don't know how. And also, I don't know if that's true, but like... I mean, people people see what they want to see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be weird for him to just be meeting up with, like, teenagers. Yeah, and like, oh, yeah, this week we're going to Toronto, and then we're going to Indy, and then we're going to somewhere else, and then we're going to New York, and then we're going to Philly, and then... Yeah. Just, just stay in one place, man. <laughs> no. Just, just enjoy, Just enjoy the scenery for a few days. No, I won't do it. <laughs> Eventually, Holmes directed Carrie, Desi, and Wharton to Vermont. Wood, wood. I was expecting a bit more enthusiasm there. Wood, wood, Vermont. Where he met up with them. He had been trying to convince Carrie to send him another child for a while, but she refused. Wonder why. Yeah, no shock there. <laughs> he thought pleading in person would help, but it didn't. Before he left her, he went into the basement of the house she was staying in and started digging. After he left, Carrie found a note telling her to go into the basement. When she did, she found a large hole dug in the floor with a bottle of nitroglycerin teetering around. Carrie later realised that this was an attempt on her life. I just also love, like, how stupid of an attempt this is think it's like he expected her to fall into the hole and hit the bottle and then everything went boom but like and this is some like cartoonery hijinkeriness because yes. if it was like balanced on top of an open like a door that's a jam and you open the door and it falls and it smashes and blows up like that would work that would work but as ridiculous as it sounds that would work <laughs> but like yeah i i i'm i'm unclear and the source that i found didn't explain it much more than that so like I want to know more about this plan, but also just like, if he really wanted to get rid of her, there were better ways. Yeah, like, I, I just... It's out there. It's um, weird. So, while Holmes was conducting this sort of deadly wagon train of children and relatives and fake wives and all this shit, uh, what he didn't realize was that he was being followed. So the Fidelity Mutual Insurance Company, which is the were the um, insurance company behind Peitzel's policy, uh, they had had someone following Holmes for weeks after he left Philadelphia. So the insurance company had been suspicious about Peitzel's death, and they had hired the famous Pinkerton National Detective Agency to track Holmes down. And as the Pinkertons do... They did just that. Uh, they followed him all the way into Canada, but obviously, while Holmes was there, he was out of their jurisdiction. So they waited. Uh, and then Holmes made um, what we will call a strange or possibly interesting choice. He actually returned to his hometown of Gilmanton, New Hampshire, and reunited with his first and still legal wife. Clara, and their now 15-year-old son, Robert. So he just rocks back up into town, 
and he told them a far-fetched tale to explain his eight-year absence. Oh, this got this. This has got to be good. I mean, you've got to you've got to really nail this this eight-year absence story. Yeah, and here's the thing: I don't think he did, but. We'll get to that. Now, he said that he had been in a terrible accident that had caused him amnesia. Because, of course, because it's like every fucking soap opera ever. I mean, he really was the inspiration for the canoe man, wasn't he? He was, yeah, he was. I have amnesia, but I know that I'm a missing person. Yeah. <laughs> really? Do you? Yeah. Um, so... Supposedly, he have the, has this accident, he forgets everything. While in the hospital, uh, he was just given the name H.H. Holmes, because hospitals do that. You know, they just name people. Yeah, like John Doe wasn't good enough? Guess not. They wanted to fancy Even... it up a little bit. And he also said that he had eventually fallen in love with and married his nurse, Georgiana. Obviously. That's how they knew each other. Um, but after doing that, he just like suddenly remembered his life as Herman Mudgett. It's like, oh shit, that's who I am. Uh, and they believed him. What? Yeah. At least in so, in so far as like they told people later. And that could have just been to like, I don't want to think about the fact that this guy was a total murderer and asshole but they said they believed him they were like sure makes sense to us and then he told them that he had to leave for business in boston but that he would return to them soon but he never did what business did he have to leave like what i, what? I don't know you know post amnesia business i guess like, at what point did he remember he was Herman Mudgett and go back to that life? Like, I don't know. Like, how? Like, did he have amnesia for eight years and then just wake up one day and go, oh, yeah, really, this is my life, but I still got to keep going on with this life as H.H. H. Holmes? I'm so confused. There are a lot of questions. That's for sure. Um, so, yeah. He never got back to New Hampshire because when Holmes arrived in Boston on November 17th, he was arrested. Finally. Um, and Better late than never. Yeah. <laughs> and he was initially charged with horse theft from his time in Texas. You know, his, his favorite hobby. Um, he was also charged with insurance fraud in Philadelphia. Now, realizing that horse theft was punishable by death in Texas, Holmes immediately confessed to the insurance fraud in hopes of being kept, you know, alive in philadelphia we'll see how that worked out for him in a bit <laughs> so he told he told detectives different stories including that he and pitesell had indeed planned to fake pitesell's death but that pitesell had taken his own life before they could proceed with the plan uh, this forced holmes to stage the scene because the insurance company wouldn't pay out in cases of suicide he also told investigators that the Pitesell children were alive and traveling with Minnie Williams. For her part in the insurance scheme, uh, Carrie Pitesell was also arrested. And while they were in prison in Philadelphia, police in Chicago were searching the castle for more evidence. Uh, Philadelphia detective Frank Geyer set out to look for the missing Pitesell children. Geyer tracked down Holmes's circular route in search of the children. Gaia tracked down the house Holmes had rented in Toronto and found the trunk with Alice and Nellie's bodies buried in the basement. When word got back to Holmes that Alice and Nellie's bodies had been found, he reportedly said, well, I suppose they'll hang me for this. Meanwhile, police and reporters uh, dug around the various rooms and passageways of the castle and this is when many of those salacious rumors got their start. So vats containing crude gasoline became vats of acid. The furnace was for cremating bodies. Rope found in a toolbox was a noose. All those sorts of fun things. But uh, not everything they found was 
innocuous. So in the basement, investigators found human bones preserved with quicklime, and it was thought that these bones were most likely the bones of Pearl Connor, Julia Connor's daughter. And inside the stove, they found remnants of jewelry that had belonged to Minnie Williams. Now, despite these various finds, uh, the Chicago police never found enough evidence to charge Holmes with any crimes in Illinois. Just kind of amazing. I mean, I don't really understand how that can happen because you don't accidentally preserve a body in quick lime, do you? No. You don't accidentally put a child in quicklime. Yes, a child may accidentally find their way into a pit of quicklime, but you don't leave it there. Well, I mean, I think that was his defense of like, uh, it, I, I don't know how that happened. Well, and also at that point, the building was no longer in his name. He transferred the deed to the building to different aliases, but also different people, including some of his victims, like... 20 different times. So, I mean, who knows at this yeah, point? Yeah, exactly. Chicago police are searching. Chicago reporters are searching. <laughs> um, Geyer had made another discovery. He tracked down the house that Holmes had rented in Indianapolis, and there he found scraps of clothing, burned photographs, several human teeth, and parts of the skull of a young boy in the house's wood stove. So Geyer had found the remains of Howard Peitzel. Uh, armed with this evidence, Holmes was put on trial in Philadelphia for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and the Peitzel children. Uh, the trial occurred in October 1895, and Holmes started things off by firing his legal team. Oh, God. Just wait. I mean, it's all very Ted Bundy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He then proceeded to do the thing that all narcissistic criminals seem to do. He acted as his own attorney. Should have saved my Ted Bundy You should have, yeah. Because that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, but apparently, he was actually kind of good at it. Um, so that's something. Uh, but eventually, his lawyers did return to court and helped him out. I don't think that people should be allowed to defend themselves in court. Same. Because, especially, well, I suppose it's different in a murder trial, but in cases of especially like domestic violence, sexual assault and things like that, you literally have a perpetrator... Cross-examining. Yeah, cross-examining their victim. Yeah. Yeah, like in this instance, um, Holmes ended up cross-examining Georgiana Yoke at one point. So, like, it's just, it's there's so much. What about compelability of a spouse, though? Not legally married. Yeah. No, it's not good. And, like, I also think that there's a difference between, so I believe it's the bill in the Bill of Rights, or it's somewhere in American law that you have the right to participate in your own defense. But I don't think that means you have the right to be your own defense, personally. And, you know, as Benjamin Franklin said, the man who acts as his own attorney has a fool for a client. Uh, that's true. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's very, that can be interpreted in many different ways. Like, you can be involved in your own defense as in, you can decide which how route it proceeds, to go. But you should not get to stand there and cross-examine your victims. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, with all that in mind, Holmes and his lawyers managed to successfully argue that the trial should only address the question of Benjamin Peitzel's death, not the deaths of his children. Uh, and like we said, during the course of the trial, Georgiana Yoke was called to testify. Uh, and because she wasn't Holmes's legal wife, she was compelled to testify against him, which apparently she did in a quite surly and disgruntled manner. Like, she was not happy to be there, which... Don't blame I mean, you. would you, if you just found out that your husband had... You know, supposedly just found out that your husband was also married to three other women... And was a murderer. And, you know, was just 
knocking off children left and right yeah. and what while you're waltzing around the midwest in canada yes well that's the thing like I, so i was as i was reading through this stuff i was like kept kept expecting to find when georgiana yoke was killed but then actually no she made it out so like good for you I was going to say all his wives survived. Uh, Minnie Williams yeah. obviously didn't, did she? But so three out of three four, out four survived. They're doing something right. So just being blissfully unaware, I guess. Well, probably just not having any inheritance. That that too. That's a big one. Carrie Pitesell also testified, and her testimony is said to have brought the courtroom to tears, which is understandable considering this poor woman thought she was just in a money-making scheme, and then ended up with three of her children murdered. And her husband. So. But yeah, I, I feel very sorry for her, because yeah. Well, no insurance fraud is wrong. Yes. It's bad. Yes. It's one thing to think that, okay, so my husband's just hiding out, pretending to be dead for a few months, and then I'll see him again. And then suddenly, your husband and all your kids are dead. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's a it's a big swing to get from one to the other yeah. Yeah. um so after all that the jury found holmes guilty of murder and he was sentenced to death by hanging yeah uh from prison following his conviction holmes wrote his memoir like well good psychopath <laughs> yeah in which he confessed to 27 murders and told his version of events he sold his confession to who else hearst newspapers because yeah. of course he did yeah. uh yeah so sold his memoir for seven and a half thousand dollars to um to hearst newspapers it was sent to his son robert in this confession holmes confessed to killing a handful of people who were still alive as well as six other attempted murders uh, most of these confessions were found to be complete bullshit yeah but they helped build the legend of Chicago's devil. It is quite impressive to confess to murder of people who are, who still, are still alive. Yeah, it's just it's great. Yeah, at Holmes was hanged at Moyamensing Prison in Philadelphia. His last request was to be buried ten feet underground, and for his coffin to be surrounded by cement. He was supposedly afraid of, and get this, uh -huh. grave robbers digging up his body and using it for dissection. Which, like, I really think you're only afraid of that if that's something you've already done in your life. It's like one of those things where it's like... Yeah. How do you it's know like, to be afraid of that, buddy? Yeah, that's... um. Nah. It's a very specific no, request. No. Uh, just four years ago, in 2017, Holmes's body was exhumed for testing because many believed he had escaped execution and sent someone else to the gallows in his place. Because of Holmes's burial requests, his body had not naturally decomposed. His clothes and moustache were found to be intact upon exhumation. Uh, the body was positively identified as Holmes by his teeth and then reburied. Uh, following his death, Holmes's legacy continued to be sensationalised. He was a popular topic for journalists at the time and following the yellow journalism traditions, they played fast and loose with the facts. Reporters managed to find all manner of people who had narrowly escaped death at the hands of Holmes. The building on 63rd and Wallace became a house of horrors and Holmes was enshrined in legend as an evil, devilish figure. In reality, he was a uh, run-of-the-mill con man. Not particularly good at getting away with his crimes. He generally just murdered people to further his fraud schemes. The story of Holmes was brought back into public consciousness by the 2003 book The Devil in the White City, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America by Eric Larson. And that is actually how I first heard of H.H. H. Holmes, because I read that book when I was like 15, so a couple years after it came out. I still haven't read it. I've started to, and then... See, what I do like about the book is 
I find all the world's fair stuff really interesting. Like, I got to the end of that book and I was like, all ready to, to like take a trip to Chicago and visit the remnants of the world's fair. Well, there's nothing <laughs> left. Like, there's two buildings or something <laughs> that's still standing. So I was really disappointed by that. But uh, also, you were 15 and live in what? Massachusetts? Connecticut. Connecticut? Yeah. So, you know, would. Would JR really have been cool letting you just take off to Chicago on your own? I mean, no. Although a year... She might have gone with you. <laughs> bef I, the year before that, I think I went with my dad to Chicago for a meeting that he had for a weekend. So <laughs> I just missed it by a year. <laughs> See, if you'd read that book a year earlier, you could have just been wandering around what was left of the White yeah, City I know. while your dad was working. Jackson Park. Should have been. Instead, I was just sitting in the, the hotel room. We also... Did you at least have pizza? Sorry? Did you at least have pizza in Chicago? Uh, I'm sure. Oh, I have since then. I've, I've been back, but I honestly don't <laughs> remember. I do remember that when I was there with my dad, we took this, sh like, river cruise, like a, you know, river tour type thing. But the tour guide would only describe things on the right-hand side of the boat. And then the boat turned around, and then he would only describe things on the left-hand side of the boat. I don't think that's how it works. No. So we only got <laughs> information about one side of the river. I mean, that is a surefire way to capsize a boat. Like, okay, everybody look at this side. It was so insane. Like, I, to this day, like, I've been on a fair number of, like, informational boat rides, whether in, yeah, fun. whether in, you know, cities around the world or at Disneyland, Jungle Cruise, highly recommend. Um, but... Like, never in my life has the, has the tour guide been so insistent on only telling you about things on one riverbank. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. So, it is, like, Eric Larson's book is really interesting, and it really brought this story back into the public eye. Um, and Larson's book weaves the story of Holmes with the construction of the World's Fair, but unfortunately, it falls back on many of the sensationalist claims from newspapers at the time as truth. So Larson's book really does tell the story of Holmes trolling the fair and killing like 200 fairgoers or whatever. Yeah. So not super accurate. Uh, a more accurate telling is Adam Selzer's comprehensive 2017 biography H.H. H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. Uh, and Selzer, interestingly enough, like, got his start writing, like, young adult and graphic novels and was also a Chicago tour guide on the side. <laughs> and then people kept asking him to do Devil in the White City tours. And so then he started researching it and then wrote a book about it. It's, like, really cool. Um, that That is pretty cool, like, to go from yeah from being a tour guide to to uncovering like the actual true story yes exactly um so yeah we highly recommend seltzer's book uh which we also used to help write this episode i am now reading it because it's so good yeah i mean i had no idea how um different. how different the truth was from so i mean you have to take everything with a a pinch of salt and we've said this a lot because we do like doing the old yeah like old stories but you have to take everything with a pinch of salt because old record keeping and old reporting was very dodgy yeah and especially in this case like it's it's especially the reporting that then got mm. rolled into the record unfortunately yeah and um and yeah i had no idea how different it was till i started reading yeah. about uh seltzer's Celsus, not Celsus. Until yes. <laughs> um, I started reading about Celsus, uh, but yeah, me, me neither. Like I, my whole knowledge of this case was Devil in the White City. Yeah. Um, so it was pretty cool to like see a whole different side of it. Celsus' book traces 
Holmes' actual crimes using contemporary records from the time and traces how the myth of Holmes started and then perpetuated. Um, he also was on this really good episode of the Generation Y podcast talking about H.H. Holmes, which oh. we'll link below. It's like really, really well done in a very like conversational kind of way. Like I, I thought it was cool. There's a lot of little like tiny details that he talks about in there that um, obviously we don't have time to <laughs> go into here. Um, so, yeah. That is the story of the man and the myth of Herman Webster Mudgett, also known as H.H. H. Holmes. Um, what is, I say, it is really interesting to see how that, how that myth, because it is a myth. Mm. It's complete fabrication from what, I mean, I had no idea. And it's interesting to see how it's taken hold in popular culture and, and fictional retellings. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really know much about H.H. Holmes mm -hmm. until the fifth season of American Horror Story came out, Hotel. So it's obviously set in the Hotel Cortez, which is based on the Cecil in Los Angeles, which we've spoken about multiple times. Um... But the hotel's owner, the Cortez's owner, who's played by Ev uh, Evan Peters, uh, James Patrick March, is based on H.H. H. Holmes. And so that's when I first sort of found out. And of course, when that show came out, there was all these sort of sensationalized articles about the House of Horrors, mm -hmm. this castle, this just, you know, hellscape of death in Chicago. And that's all I really knew. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting to see that kind of blended with the Cecil. Yeah. <laughs> um, In. And that's the thing, like, that I... So, The Devil in the White City is the first nonfiction book that I read in my own free time and fell in love with, like, creative nonfiction because of it like I love Eric Larson's writing style and I've like read some of his other books as well um but like just the way that he told this story of these two worlds like the the world's fair and this criminal underbelly so mm -hmm. this case has always had sort of a place in my mind because of that but yeah. <laughs> realizing that like that version of the story is i don't want to say not it's not true it's not true but also it is true in a way because like truth is perception right and so it this is how the story is remembered and then we yeah. have to change that perception in order to uncover what really happened so i think that's really interesting yeah and every everyone who writes anything nonfiction, you pick and yeah. choose what sources you use we do it every yeah, week with this absolutely you can't combine every single version into every book and every story yeah and like to be fair when we started talking about doing this case i was like well i'll reread the devil in the white city and like i never got around to rereading much of it i read a couple chapters but i'm kind of glad now that i didn't because i got to get this whole other take on on the story yeah. um so i i think that's super cool and as usual we will link all of the various sources that we've used um for parts one and two in in the show notes for each respective episode and on the web page um, on our website yeah so yeah and yeah and um, i'm still pissed that this man didn't have his credit when <laughs> I'm just pissed by the whole concept of credit ratings. Well, yes, I agree with that. Um, also, I, I just love that he, he, confessed to insurance fraud to not get killed in Texas and then got <laughs> killed in Pennsylvania yeah. instead. Like, good job. Where would you rather? Would you rather die in Texas or Pennsylvania? I feel like in Texas it'd be a speedier process, but. Because they're, 
they were well versed in that sort of thing at the time. If they're if they're killing everyone who's ever stolen a horse, like yeah. So I think that would be my choice, but I'm not <laughs> I'm not Mr. Mudget, so there you go. You're not planning on doing some horse thiever thievery. Yeah, no, not anytime soon. Anyway, I can't get to Texas. I mean, it's too cold. It's too cold, moment. and I can't get there. So no thanks. And on that note. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have a moment, we would love it if you guys could give us a five-star rating and review and subscribe to us wherever you are listening right now. Yes, we're greedy. Give us them stars. I mean, like, are you really going to sit there and say, eh, like, you're either going to give us a one-star review or you're going to give us a five-star review. Let's be real. Someone gave us a three-star review and I'm like, really? Well... You just don't know what you want, then, do you? If you're going to have an opinion on something, then at least make it a real opinion, not just meh. Yeah, like either like us or hate us. Don't be indifferent. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so rating us really does help, and it's easy and free. Yeah. If you want to support the show, you can check out our merch store at our Patreon page for lots of bonus content, including full-length episodes, uh, fun rambles, and more. There's always... There's always stuff happening over there. Yes. And we have to give a shout out to our newest patron. Yes, we do. Um, uh, thank you and welcome to Dawn. Yes, thank you. Beautiful name. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. And um, we hope yeah. that you like what you find. Uh, and yeah, thanks. So um, with that, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.